Uh, good afternoon, brothers. Uh, you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 will be our text for this afternoon, Colossians 3. Uh, I'm glad to be sharing God's Word with you, the first of the semester, and this is going to be my last practice preaching um, of my time here, Lord willing. So Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, this is God's holy word. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for a helping portion of your Holy Spirit with us all this afternoon, that you will illumine the word to us and help it to go deep into our hearts. And we pray all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. One of the great desires in every believer's heart is to grow spiritually. We can talk about this growth in different ways. We might talk about Christian maturity, spiritual growth, the theological word often being sanctification. That is our growing in godliness, our being made more Christ-like, bringing our lives and attitudes more into conformity with Christ. And we might think of this progressive journey in the Christian life as the ascent of a mountain, as it were, that as we um, seek to go up the pinnacle, we're seeking to grow in Christian obedience. And in chapter three of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we can think of it as a, a chart or a path of Christian maturity, of godliness. And in the first two chapters, Paul's been careful to lay a foundation of Christ, Christ's supremacy over all things, his sufficiency. And from this basis, Paul is now moving on in this chapter to the practical aspects of Christian obedience. What is the path of godliness? And this was really important because in the Colossian church, there were many teachers showing false paths of godliness. There was false teaching abounding. We're not given quite all the details on what this false teaching entailed, but we know that elements of it included asceticism, that is a sort of rigorous self-denial that would seek to, to feign godliness. It included elements of Jewish ritualism and ceremonial law-keeping as the way to maturity, and also other elements of sort of uh, cosmic or astral powers, worship of angels, and the such. They were being tempted by these false paths, and Paul wants to outline for the church what true maturity is. And this is relevant for us because we too are often tempted by false paths of godliness, whether that might be legalism or mysticism, the various calls and cries we hear in this world. And we need to be led on God's path of maturity. That is, if we were to begin, before we would begin this ascent up the mountain of Christian maturity, there's two things that you would need to be sure of right off the bat. The first is that you're on the right path the trail. Uh, if you're on a big mountain without a trail, it's incredibly difficult to navigate. You want to have a solid foundation. But secondly, you need to make sure that you're actually facing the right direction on the trail so that you're going up and not down. And before Paul gets to the practical how-to of Christian obedience, 
in this chapter, these four, four, first four verses are giving us a very important preamble. That is, Paul is setting the foundation of Christian maturity and the proper orientation of Christian maturity. That is, what is the right path and where do we need to be facing and headed on that path before we get to the aspects of practical obedience? the path and mindset necessary for Christian maturity. So that's what we'll be looking at in two points, the foundation of Christian maturity and the orientation of Christian maturity. So firstly, the foundation. It must immediately be noted that if anyone is to embark on the pursuit of godliness, that natural man is immediately confronted with significant obstacles, an unscalable rock wall, as it were. Because natural man, his mind, his will, his affections are contrary to the things of God and can't even begin to truly, spiritually please God. And therefore, if one is to become godly, to be made more like the creator, then there must be a change of the self. And this can be summarized in the idea of union with Christ. Union with Christ being a concept of the, the root good from which all the blessings of salvation flow. All the blessings of salvation are connected to union with Christ. And it's this doctrine of union with Christ that the Apostle Paul upholds as foundational to understand as we embark on this life of practical obedience. And our text speaks of union with Christ in three different aspects. Union with Christ in his death, in his life, and in his return. We'll consider these in turn. First, let's consider union with Christ in his death. Verse 1 reads, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, this is not, uh, there's an unfortunate chapter break. This is not disconnected from chapter two. Because just before he said, if ye be risen with Christ, in Colossians 2.20, he said, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Because this idea of deadness with Christ is logically prior to the idea of risenness with Christ. And the idea of deadness with Christ pops up again in verse 3, which says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so union with Christ for the Apostle Paul means union with Christ in his death. And union with Christ in his death has two significant implications, which we see from both these texts. Union with Christ in his death means... Being dead to legalistic attempts to maintain favor with God through our own human efforts. This was the idea in 2.20. And it also means deadness to enslaving affectionate lusts, which we see in verse 3. And legalism is an enslaving way of life. This idea of maintaining relationship with God through our works, it's enslaving because it can't be done. Uh, the, a picture of legalism might be someone trying to maintain a 10-acre lawn with a pair of scissors. It's back-breaking, horrendous labor that is oppressive. And by the time you think you're getting close to done, everything else is already overgrown. You're constantly failing because the call is so high. There's an enslaving aspect to this works teaching that was infecting the Colossian church. To be dead with Christ is to be dead to that because Christ's righteousness is freely given to the one who has faith in Christ. But it also means deadness to 
worldly lusts. Uh, it says in verse two to three, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That is on the basis of being dead, the believer ought to be dead to earthly affections, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. And just as legalism can enslave the supposedly religious, so these lusts enslave those who seem worldly. And I'm sure we can think of people who seem to have ran after the love of pleasure, the love of money, the love of sensuality, and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But to be dead with Christ is to be dead to these enslaving, vain, idolatrous pursuits. And this life, the one that is dead with Christ, is said in our text to be the life that is hidden with Christ in God. The idea of hiddenness being that it's a life protected or secured until the day of eternity. And I might ask you this afternoon, do you know this deadness? Do you know what it feels like to be freed from human efforts? Or do you still see yourself as needing to mow your own lawn, as it were, to maintain a standing with God? Do you know deadness to, deadness to worldly lust, Or do you feel an enslaving force compelling you towards sin? To be united with Christ is to be united with Christ in his death. The believer is dead with Christ. But secondly, he's also united with Christ in his life. Verse 1 again. If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You see, the believer has been given a new nature, not only to be dead to sin, and too many just sort of stop there, but also to be alive unto righteousness, to be freed unto a renewed obedience. Paul speaks elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 5 to 6. He says that even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is such an amazing, um, ennobling truth. And Paul speaks to the same effect in Romans 6, 4. We are buried with him by baptism into death that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The believer isn't just raised to spiritual life, but called to walk in the newness of the spiritual life, to live according to this renewed nature. Um, a, a couple whites, um, a couple months ago, my uh, wife lost her sense of smell due to the coronavirus. It's as if you could say her smell died. But as the smell slowly returned, there was a new life, as it were. Um, there was such a joy in the seemingly mundane things. Um, it didn't come all at once. It would be just one candle. And she'd just be there enjoying the smell of that one candle. So overjoyed to be able to smell something again. And that's just a slight picture of when you've been brought from death to life, there should be a joy in obedience to God. A... a um, an ennobling of the soul that can now walk um, according to a higher plane. Like a uh, tiger raised its whole life in a small cage, freed to finally live according to its nature, roaming the wild, being the way, acting the way it was designed. To be a believer is to have a high spiritual calling in risenness with Christ. 
And as beautiful and high as this calling is, the best is still to come. Because the believer is also united with Christ in his return. Take a look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. United to Christ in his life now, but united to Christ in that future resurrection, to share with him in that future glory of the resurrected body in the new world. This is such an amazing Christian hope. And this hope, the hope that's based on the truth of union with Christ in his return, is a hope that engenders perseverance and consistency in the practice of Christian obedience. It's an essential motivator in the Christian life. Because when things get difficult, it's important to look to the end. Right? We can often think of how in the middle of the semester, when you get really bogged down with the difficulties of the work, to look to the end, the near end, and think, soon this will all be over. But also to think a little further to when you're walking across that stage in a funny gown, and you realize that you've completed this course, and you're now entering into a new era where you can implement and live out everything that you've learned. And there's a motivating joy in that, just as there is in the Christian life. Because Christian obedience is never in vain. It's going somewhere. And so, in death with Christ, life with Christ, waiting Christ's return, there's an essential foundation for the practice of Christian maturity. Because if we just jump into those practical how-tos without recognizing the foundation of union with Christ, we'll quickly fall into a legalistic mindset, an enslaving mindset. And so this is the mindset of Christian maturity, and it rests on the reality of union with Christ. But not only that, it's a mindset that has an orientation towards the things of heaven. This is the orientation of Christian maturity. Let's look again at the commands that pop out of union with Christ in verses 1 to 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So here are two imperatives that are intimately connected to and flowing from union with Christ. Seeking the things which are above and setting your mind on the things which are above. Uh, This could literally be the above things. But what are these above things that we're supposed to seek and set our minds on? Well, it says that they are the things that are where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That is, they are the things of heaven. But not the things of heaven separate from earth. This isn't saying just to think about cherubs and um, great creatures that only live in heaven. But it's that which has its source in heaven. That which flows from the throne of God. That which is of God. And so it does have great relevance for the things of earth. All goodness, truth, and beauty that flow from the Father of lights. To be seeking the things above. The things above being the things of God. The things of the spiritual the eternal, the invisible, but still having relevance to this life. And before Paul, again, gets to the practical how-to, he wants this orientation to be fixed in us because the heart needs to be engaged in all our obedience. 
Now, we're called to seek. What does it mean to seek those things which are above? Well, the idea of seeking here is that of seeking by inquiring or investigating. That is, it's not a seeking that's a frantic running divorce from the mind, but, but that of which the mind has an essential part. It's an intentional pursuing, not just a casual look about. We are to be intentionally pursuing the things above. Uh, we, we can think of this difference. Um, if you remember how Dr. Beaky at the beginning of the year always warns against the dangers of the library, how, you, how easily you can get swept up in the interesting books to just be distracted. But when you are to focus on your work, you need a particular book, you seek after it, you're looking, you get to the call sign, you take the book you need and avoid all the other distractions so that you can focus on your work. And this is a picture of what it's like when we are seeking the things above, an intentional pursuit, avoiding just the distractions of the glimmers and glamours of life on this earth. If we live unpurposely, just meandering about this life, we are far more easily distracted. But we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're also to set our affections on things above. What does this mean? Well, a better translation might be to set your minds on the things above. This is the usual idea associated with the Greek term. But that said, there's no, um, the, the New Testament doesn't think of the mind as we often do, as just the pure rational reasoning faculty. But the mind refers to a far deeper reality. And when you think about it, the mind and the affections are intimately connected. What you think about and give your attention to, those become the things you develop affections for, the things you love. And so there is an intimate association between the mind and the affections. And so to set the mind and affections on things above implies a fixing of the attention, an, an intentional focus. Marketers today, I've heard it said, no longer consider your time your most valuable asset but your attention. Because they know that if they can have your attention, they can begin to shape you and market to you more accurately. Attention is valuable. We are shaped by the things we give attention to. And if you think about it, attention is at the very heart of worship. In worship, we direct our mind's attention and our heart's affection to God. And without this, worship just becomes bare ritualism. The mind and heart must be engaged in worship for it to be pleasing to God, a proper orientation to God, a fixing of the attention on him. A, this worshiping orientation is essential, essential to the, the development of Christian maturity. That is, you could say, as we behold Christ, we become like Christ. And a question for you might be, where is your attention oriented? If your attention were like the needle on a compass, what is the north? What's the magnetic north that your attention most naturally returns to? Not, not when you're focused on a necessary project, but in those spaces of free thinking. Even when you're walking to the kitchen to grab a glass of water, in those times, where does your attention most naturally return? Is it to sports? To politics? Even to just the cognitive questions of theology? Or does your attention go to the things above, the things of God, who he is, what he's done? Where's your magnetic center? Because if it's not the above things, perhaps you need to recalibrate your heart. 
and spend some time with God. That is, we need to cultivate spiritual mindedness. This is essential in our pursuit of Christian maturity. Heavenly mindedness, a God wordness, a heart inclined towards heaven. And the heart that's inclined towards heaven is the heart that's declined from earth. Verse two again says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. If you're inclined towards heaven, you're declined towards earth. Every step you make closer to the summit is a step further away from the ground. If you're swept up in love to God, you will be increasingly detached from the love of self, the love of pleasure, the love of money. And a growing, maturing Christian is the one who's progressing on the foundation of union with Christ, recognizing that reality but also giving his attention, orienting his mind and heart to the things of heaven. And now it's still early in 2021. And I'm sure each one of us has things we're aware of this year, areas of life in which we want to grow, sins we want to kill, obedience that we want to cultivate, good habits that we want to form, things we want to change about our character, things we want to cultivate. But the encouragement for us from God's word and the warning is that this year, you don't just jump into these issues of practical obedience with and forget the necessary foundation and heart orientation. If you are seeking to obey without the cognizant, the, um, the awareness that you are dead to sin, alive to God in righteousness, or waiting a new world, you can so quickly fall into legalistic bondage. If you seek to grow in practical obedience this year and forget that in it all, your heart needs to be oriented to the things of heaven, you need to maintain a spiritual disposition and frame of mind, you will quickly fall into coldness and deadness in your obedience. And so Paul rightly recognizes that as, yes, we do want to grow in maturity and obedience, but it must stem from a foundation of knowing who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ and a heart that is inclined after him. If you don't know God in this way, you can't even begin the path of Christian obedience. You must repent of your sin, recognize what it means to be dead in Christ, and to live unto God, to render your allegiance to him as your only hope, to have changed affections where the loves of God, love of neighbor becomes preeminent in your heart to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Once you do that and know this union with Christ, what a glorious joy it is to climb up this mountain of Christian maturity, to seek to attain the, whatever heights we can in this life, knowing we will never achieve perfection, but to be more like Christ by the end of this year by the end of our lives. What a delight that is. Amen.